This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is David Alhadef, the founder of contemporary design gallery, The Future Perfect. Founded in Brooklyn at a time when the world was focused on Europe, over the past 20 years, David's creation has helped put American industrial designers on the map. In the process, he's built a unique business model, combining a gallery space with his own home in L.A. I spoke with David about finding ways to change within the constraints of a small business, how L.A. compares to New York as a market for design, and why you can't have scale and cachet at the same time. This podcast is sponsored by Minted, a marketplace for independent art and design. Specializing in prints, you can find a variety of mediums and sizes, all available with premium custom framing options. Interior design professionals use their curated art destination for projects big and small. Their exclusive trade program offers complimentary art proposals, insider discounts, and free domestic shipping on all member orders. Get recommendations for your next project by joining at minted.com slash trade. Every time we do a new project and something new comes up and we're like, oh, put that in our process. I don't do a discovery call. It's like you either want me or you don't. In this industry where it's just like boom, 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 people are coming at you, subcontractors, contractors, vendors. If you're going to be an interior designer, you are a salesperson. If tomorrow the ultimate most wonderful client came along, that would be great. But if it doesn't happen tomorrow, I'm still going to keep working on the things that I have today. And I'm happy with those things. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home and the host of Trade Tales. Every other week, I speak with a designer to explore the challenges, pivots, and perspective shifts that come with growing an interior design firm. We talk about how to get billing right and how to build trust, about the difficult clients and the difficult employees, about all of the ways that entrepreneurship will test you, and also all of the ways that it will leave you inspired. To listen, Search for Trade Tales wherever you get your podcasts. And now, on with the show. Before we even talk, though, about the future perfect, I want to learn more about perhaps this vast paper fortune that you might have had at one time, right? In the early dot com days. oh you want to go back well i want to oh I wanna... that's fun <laughs> yeah oh we can go there there was this tech rush in like the late 90s and a, a friend of mine and i we we established an e-commerce website that sold kind of like teen girl stuff online think like claire's or even like a like an accessory section of urban outfitters you know right okay um, so what we did was we set up this company we established this e-commerce angle and, um, and then we got like somehow through like business development, we got plugged in as like the AOL shopping channel for teens. Really? It was great. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and obviously teens were very quick to adapt to online shopping. They, they understood it. That was right. intuitive for them. Yeah. So we were flooded with orders and we built this like kind of boutique, but very successful business. And then we sold it to an entity. And as you said, I became very wealthy on paper for a very short period of time because in like 1999, that rush stopped oh. rushing. Oh. And during that collapse, our company was actually one of the first, unfortunately, to kind of fall. Mm. So yeah, it was an amazing experience. I was 24 years old. It was very early in my career. And we set up this company and we had a lot of success and it was great. It was a lot of fun. And when it failed, it was humbling. And that was good too. You know, I, I think it was important for me to to fail after the success, just for me, because my ego got a little conflated and yeah. things just got a little out of hand. So it was good for me to recalibrate. And when I recalibrated my priorities, like what do I want to be working on? Because I did have a pretty good resume to continue with tech. And I could have used that as a pivot opportunity to move out to like San Francisco and join Silicon Valley and do something in that. Like that was an option, you know, 
But I remembered um, that deep in my heart, in the crags and corners of my heart, um, I am really moved by the beauty of design. And and what reminded you of that during that time? As a kid, I was the kind of kid that like rearranged my room every three weeks and like made you know I, I remember playing in 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 my neighborhood with with a friend and we would make um, cardboard houses out of shoe boxes for our Smurfs. You know, <laughs> I mean, just like architecture, interior design, planning. These things were of interest. Like kids were drawing things. I was drawing floor plans. You know, this is the era of like the 80s, dynasty, lifestyles of the rich and famous. I mean, you didn't have to look too far to peer into and behind the gate of this like world. And it was very attractive. And it wasn't the wealth that was so attractive to me. It was the the, the way they lived. It was the home mm. furnishings. It was like the way these homes were and how it was all put together. And I was fascinated with it and I loved it. So in, in my education experience in college, I recognized I wasn't well suited to architecture. But finding another avenue with which to work in this field made sense at around 1999-2000. So the the dot com bubble bursts. All these all these companies sadly go away, and many of them come come down to earth. And uh, you take a, a little bit of time, dust yourself off, and and then how do you make the decision to to start? What, what at first was sort of a, a shop in, in Williamsburg? I mean, what, what was it originally? So 1999, the company goes bust. I do take some time and I go and travel a bit. Then I get back. I want to get back on my feet. I spent, you know, there was that humbling year of being unemployed. Then there was 9-11. Mm. And, and so things didn't really stack up before I got the opportunity to start the Future Perfect in Williamsburg in 2003. And when we started, I just noticed something and in my naivete and ignorance, didn't realize that what I was doing was like treading upon the like pre-existing ideas of the time (laughs) of like how things should be, you know, which is I noticed there was this beautiful work being created by this community of people centered in Brooklyn, And uh, so right in our backyard, there was this amazing group of people producing really thoughtful, beautiful work. And it wasn't being recognized or appreciated by, um, by sort of the, the, the previous, the currently existing kind of design, you know, retail and gallery industry, you know? So the mission was like the best of what's new in design. It was meant to be an emerging design gallery and our, offering centered itself in this community of work that was being produced in Brooklyn, which became known at the time as Brooklyn design. Mm. And these are people who are still important and working today. And I remember like the first few years that I was working, I spent most of the time defending why American design was even worth working with (laughs) than even talking about the work itself, you know? And, and I mean, a lot of this was based on the preconceived idea that like design was, was an Italian thing. It was created and made in Italy. And that was the, that was the stamp of approval that needed to be had for it to be considered credible, you know? And then there was this like small movement of Dutch design that was also really fun and really cool. And that was okay too, you know, but let's not look too far outside of like Scandinavia, Italy. It's a European thing mostly, Mm. you know, but like Italy was kind of a big thing at that moment but like american american what are you talking about well and and who was setting the rules there who was who was telling you that you were in violation of these italy only rules at the at the time well certainly the clients didn't because they appreciated what we were doing almost from the go you know i mean we we had a we had a profitable business from our first year so i'm Mm. not going to say i was i was living large but we were we were able to support ourselves from go, you know, there has never been a trust fund supporting the business. Um, so, you know, we mentioned that I had some money. It was gone by the time this all started, you know? So, it was. Yeah. Your, so your, when your I, vast internet fortune. Exactly. My internet was, fortune had evaporated. I mean, it was, was a thing on of the paper past. fortune and it <laughs> right. was not, it, it was not on any paper anymore by the time this started. So, you know, so, so I was very, um, I had to be very, you know, fiscally conservative about yeah. how I operated the business and attempted to do so with profitability in mind. So we were received well by clients. The press was probably the place where I wouldn't say they were like, how dare you do this? It was more, they were very inquisitive about it. You know, Hmm. the press in our field of interest 
is not terribly critical. If they're bothering to talk to you, it kind of means that they're interested in what you're doing. Mm. It was just the, they had a lot of questions about it, you know, and in those questions and with hindsight, I can see that there was a, um, something I had to defend. What makes you think you can, you can do this and. Or like why American design? What's interesting about American design? What's interesting about these designers? Why do you think they, you know, why do you think that their work is, is important in, in what, in, right. And we're talking about people like Lindsay Adelman, Jason Miller, like you don't have to ask those questions about those people anymore. Right. You're not going to ask Lindsay, why do you think what you're doing is, is, uh, is, is, is interesting. Like, what, it's exactly. Like, yeah. Well, and, and what had you, and what had you said to, to Lindsay Adelman and, and others in the beginning about, Hey, I want to, I want to represent you, or I, I, I want to open up a shop that, that highlights your, your work, or you had a business plan and you, and yeah. you, you had it mapped out and you, yeah, you yeah. Had and it. I found a space and I met with these people and I talked to them about inviting their work into our location. And I explained a bit of the contextual landscape with which we were going to present it. You know, I wasn't just going to be putting it in a space that was filled with rock and roll t-shirts. You know, it was, it was like, <laughs> no, 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 we're, we're going to do something. It's going to focus around design. It's going to focus around emerging design and talent. We're starting with a group of primarily Americans, but this will be a great way to, to begin to tell this story. And who in the beginning were you imagining was going to be coming to Williamsburg and, and discovering all of this? Like, that's the piece of it that I'm like, I don't know what I was thinking, you know? I mean, I just <laughs> Oh, thought, wait, the customers. Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, no, I mean, Williamsburg. <laughs> so in 2003, there was a restaurant across the street with us called C. And there was Planet Thailand up the block. And there was a clothing store down the block called Isa. All of these things were pretty cool. And people from the city, people in quotes, you know, <laughs> right. were- we're coming out to Williamsburg to visit. So we definitely had, you know, a much busier business on like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday mm. than we did on Monday, Tuesday. You know, um, we were sort of, we were there for that weekend visitor, you know, and that was kind of how we did get started. I mean, I'm thinking back to like that really tactical thing of like, no, our opening hours were like Tuesday through Sunday. Like we were not open on Mondays. Whereas now, Mondays is our most important day of business. Really? Interesting. And, and why is that? At this juncture, you know, our business is primarily working with, um, with trade, with, yeah. art with, art, with interior designers, art advisors, and collectors. And so the weekend business has just become less valuable to us. Right. The biggest value for us is to work with those clients that are also managing businesses. So... Monday ends up being a day that everybody kind of gets back to work. But but staying with the early days, so I mean, so you mentioned so for all of the the unknown about who was actually going to come and discover this and and embrace it, it, it sounds like and maybe you were running it in such a lean way in the beginning that you didn't have to sell a lot right away to make it profitable. But it sounds like it it, it was. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like we we didn't necessarily have to sell a ton to make it profitable, but we had to sell, you know. And we had to sell for more than the profitability or maintaining the business. We had to sell because the artists whom we were representing were dependent upon us for their livelihood, which is the more important aspect of developing the business. And it's something that I think about to this day. And that is something that's carried forward is that when we work with one of our artists or um, studio partners, we are responsible for their success as well. So, so even more, like I could take whatever and stick it in in a space and call it a shop. But I felt a real responsibility to the people who we were representing. So I really worked to make sure that, you know, we had a big PR story. We had a big PR angle. I got out there. I met people. I networked the concept. I got stories written about us. I was, I was an advocate mostly for the artists. Well, and, and in the beginning, I mean, did you feel to that point as if you were you were almost acting as the the agent for for these for these designers and and artists in the, in the early days getting their work out in front of people telling their stories pushing for all that we definitely got their work out there i wish i had been smart enough to act as their agent because <laughs> a lot of other brands started to pick up the work that we were representing you know and and some of those brands don't exist anymore some do you know but but it was like it was very early days and you know 2003 the big design event in new york was the um was in may 
the ICFF trade fair. Mm, right. And we would do, we did a, some nice exhibitions and had some events around that. And again, you know, brought people out, did some offsite after hours things, you know, just really tried to paint a picture that there was a buzz going on in this neighborhood and in this community. And, and I remember other retailers would come by and people were like, this is amazing. This is great. And like our artists started being represented by other galleries as well, or other shops around the country and even internationally, you know? And, um, and so, and I think that's when like this concept of like Brooklyn design mm. began to get a name. Like it didn't have a name when we were doing it. And then it, and then it got a name. And at this point, people don't really think about that anymore. Like now it kind of falls into the category of like American design because other things have happened and most creatives have moved and dispersed themselves across the country. And, you know, they're not in Brooklyn anymore, you know? Yeah. Well, right, exactly. And, and, and for the cognoscenti of the day, Williamsburg, I mean, you, you had the vision to, to, to imagine that Williamsburg would become what it has. But back, back in the day, Williamsburg was where you drop somebody off you hope to never hear from ever again. And <laughs> I mean, good luck getting a taxi to Williamsburg in 2003. Yes, like, exactly. if, if you were out in the city having a couple drinks and it was midnight and you were trying, when I was trying to get home, I'll just say for me, like, I go out in the city, I would try to get home, and it would be like people, you know, cabs would like kick me out of the cab. I'm not going over there. <laughs> But the neighborhood for sure was different. And actually, the neighborhood blew up in a way that I didn't entirely expect because 2008 was the banking crisis. And what happened there is people felt insecure spending their money. Mm. So any and all retail entities were in trouble. So we decided in 2009, we pivoted and felt like we could return to the um, ethos of our mission by opening up in Manhattan. And we used that sort of slump in the economy as an opportunity to secure a space on Great Jones Street. Over the next five years, from 2009 till 2012, 13, we just continue to hone in and hone in on what we do. And what we do is a very unique thing. You know, it lies outside of the typical, which is that we represent contemporary unlimited production work alongside contemporary limited edition and one-of-a-kind works. We primarily work with smaller scale studios and boutique manufacturers and individual artists. So we curate around an idea of contemporary design that is somewhat democratic regarding the numbers of production. And part of my thinking with that has, has, has been that historical design that's really well received in the current market you know for mm. for example we can use like a pierre genere as a good example of this like those genere dining chairs you know they were not produced in a limited edition they they were produced quite extensively i mean there were thousands of them you know um you know camelion sofas these were not limited edition pieces so you know, I, I've always felt like in the if we're looking at it through a contemporary lens, the work that defines itself as being important is for the future to tell us. It's not entirely about what is limited edition and one of a kind. So that kind of explains a bit of our curatorial ethos, which roots itself in contemporary design across studios, boutique manufacturers, and artists. And in 2009 to 13, we just get more and more specific about this. We get we get more and more directed. And and were you finding as 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 the business evolved and and you you referenced earlier, suddenly the business is much more being driven by the designers and the and the dealers and the, and the collectors. And did you find that that's who suddenly was was coming to you rather than the the consumer who might want to buy directly? Yes, absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't think the design community would have a problem now going to Brooklyn for something, but, um, but I, I remember from our Brooklyn location, having conversations with designers and then being like, so can you bring that up to my office? And me <laughs> being like, I was the only one working there and being like, I probably can't, you know, and they're like, damn, cause we really wanted to buy it. Bye. But it was like, oh, like the idea of going to Brooklyn for, for a lot of that, that community was just not going to happen. You know, if it, if it did happen, it was happening on the weekends and it was happening because it wasn't part of their professional. It was part of their personal. You right. know, once we had our Manhattan location, we absolutely rooted and cemented 
our client relationships. And at the time of 2009, this was much, this was exclusively with the interior design community, the art collecting, art advising community of professionals is something that came to us later. And and is that now a, a a big slice of the of the business? Do a lot of people see this as as art, and and th- that community is much more involved? Yeah, I mean, and and a lot of a lot of um, interior designers have become art advisors. Like these things are fluid, you know. So art advisors are helping to curate sort of design collections, and um, interior designers are also helping to curate art collections. So. Our interior designers are, are our primary clients, but um, but we do work with some art advisors as well. So we should explain how you how you show product and and what this space in New York was and and the home aspect of it, um, and and that's something that you that you do uniquely in in multiple locations now. Well, that's yeah, that that takes us to a different era, you know. So <laughs> scanning scanning through, so like two thousand. Nine, we opened Manhattan. Two thousand thirteen, we opened San Francisco. I will acknowledge on a personal level, I really wanted to open up in Los Angeles. Los Angeles was still sort of steeped in an idea of design that was like was very limited in terms of the purview that it had. You know, it was it was like I even think it's like a dwellification of design. It was like mid-century modern homes filled with mid-century modern things. You know, <laughs> and I just couldn't see where the future perfect as a contemporary design outpost kind of lived in LA. It probably did, but I wasn't on the Angelino. So we decided to open in San Francisco because there was a real similarity to the client that was there um, with our client in New York. But my pa- my passion, my personal passion was I really wanted to move to Los Angeles. Personally. <laughs> you personally wanted that. How are we going to make this happen for the How business? We, like th- and this is something that happens. I think a lot of small business owners, a lot of business owners in general, you know, your business is, you've opened up this business, you've done this thing, you've had it now 10 years, 12 years even, and you want to make a shift for yourself personally, but it doesn't align with your business. So what do you do? Like what I, what I did is I just hung on and stayed patient and like, knew that this was something I wanted to do, but knew that I wasn't going to necessarily be able to manifest it when I wanted to manifest it. You know, in 2016, I started to pay more attention to what we could do in Los Angeles. I felt like the landscape had changed even in the few years, and there was more opportunity for our contemporary design program to be well-received in that city. And what do you think had happened in LA? What what had what had shifted? What what had come along that had kind of opened people's minds about? Well, what came along first that was so scary was Moss opened in LA and like and didn't work. So I was really like, well, if that doesn't work, how are how are we gonna you know how are we gonna work? <laughs> and it seemed like what that told me was that the the community of people that were interested in this were shopping in New York already. So I kind of saw that and I was like, okay. So then hang tight with LA for a minute. By 2016, I think the market had changed a bit. We're starting to see a little bit less, maybe not a little less, a lot less of this distinctly sort of mid-century in a mid-century vibe going on. Um, And we're starting to see a lot of eclecticism. So I could see this happening. I knew Los Angeles was great. I came out to LA to get more serious about it. and, um, And I got really, really confused and I got really um, frustrated. <laughs> what do you mean? What so? What confused you? What what got you frustrated? Well, Los Angeles wasn't wasn't an easy city to read in 2016, mm. and I know it's only 2024, so we're only talking about like eight years ago. But the retail landscape in Los Angeles wasn't as clearly defined as it is today, you know. And um, I would get together with like a real estate agent. It was very very confusing, and the prices were all over the place, and things made no sense. And I just got very confused and very frustrated and kind of from that ended up thinking like, maybe I'll just take a house and I'll put um, our program in the house and I'll live in the house. Sure. And maybe clients will come, like maybe they'll come, maybe. And we opened and it was crazy. It was amazing. Like we called that house Casa Perfect and (laughs) it was the residential gallery location for the future perfect in Los Angeles. And people did shop and it was, it was slow at first, you know, LA is not, um, is not a quick market to crack. 
Um, mm. I think we're in our fifth year and I can say we're just starting to feel comfortable here, but cracked enough that it was working and we were like, this is cool and cracked well enough that like we decided to get a more ambitious and exciting house for our second location in LA because what people started to really enjoy, which I always enjoyed in LA too, was like this idea of like beautiful pieces of architecture. You know, you, you drive around the high street in Los Angeles and you look at the architecture, it's strip malls. It's not pretty. Right. It's, yeah. it's really not like if, if you want to make a generalization, commercial architecture in LA is ugly. And if you want to make another generalization, residential architecture in LA is beautiful. There are a lot of beautiful homes here. And I just thought like, I would love to like have a space where people can come and see an incredible piece of architecture and view our program, like within those spaces. And it's been great. So our second house was the Elvis Presley estate in Beverly Hills. And then we, we shifted, you know, Elvis Presley was kind of like the story of that house. And I, um, I wanted to bring the story back to architecture. So I found in the, in the same neighborhood, I found this, um, kind of architectural masterpiece designed by Raul Garduno. And that was our next house. And a lot of people missed that house because that was our COVID house. So we had like one really big, really great party at that house. And then everything shut down. And, um, and then the, the, the next house we went to was the house that we're currently in. Um, which is, um, we have sort of affectionately named it the Goldwyn house. It was built in 1913 and, uh, Samuel Goldwyn lived here from 1916 till 1925. And this has shifted our story about what we're doing with these houses, because what we're starting to do here, which is so amazing, is we're developing work that's site-specific for the house from our roster of talent. So one example of this is that we just recently um, did a uh, powder room with Chris Wolston, where he has done the sink, he has done the chandelier, the sconces, the mirror on the wall. He is, he's really like, he's done the powder room. And we're going to continue to, to um, create these spaces throughout the house with our roster of talent that are that will live on with the house these are things that we don't we will not take with us to the next location in quotes you know should there be a next location so was that what you were doing previous before before the goldwyn house were you i mean were you flipping these properties staying for a relatively short period of time and what was the mechanics of all that no like as i said you know there's never been a trust fund you know, so, so <laughs> that's what so, I'm wondering. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so we were, these? yeah, we were not buying these houses. We, we were, okay. we were dealing with a favorable real estate economy in Los Angeles at the time. And we were able to rent. And Got then it. with the Goldwyn house, we did make a shift and we did purchase this house. Did you buy it personally with the idea? I'm going to live here and we're also going to have the business or was the, did the business buy it and you're sandwiched in there somehow? No, I bought it. You bought it. Personally. I bought it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But now we're getting into the mechanics a little bit, which right. is, which is less, less interesting. Like you want to, if you want to ask my accountant about that stuff, he'll tell you why I bought it versus the business bought it. Because from my point of view, like it really didn't make a difference if the business bought it or I bought it. The two things are somewhat inextricably linked. They remain inextricably linked even 20 years later. Um, not in a bad way though, just in this way of like, when I think about the finances of the business, like I am talking about my personal finances. So I get, I get, I mean, I'm sure there's other small business owners that will laugh when they hear this, but like I, I, I think very long and hard if I like choose to do something like stay in a nice hotel, cause I'm like, it's not the business, it's my money. So like, right. if I'm, if I'm overspending for some, like a luxury, like a small luxury, you know, during business travel, I'm very conservative about these things. Cause I'm always <laughs> like thinking about the, the two things just don't seem different to me. It's like what I would do personally and what I do professionally are very much aligned, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's and I think that's often the way with family businesses. And uh, when I was, uh, I had a small advertising agency in my early career, and most of my clients were small family businesses. And it was, do we take a vacation or do we buy some more advertising than the New York Times? And it was like, yes, it was like that kind yes, of thing. Yes, yes, you know, it is, it is, it is, and and, and certainly the business yeah. has grown a little past that thinking for sure. You know, right. definitely. But, but yeah. I can still get caught up in that. It's penny wise, pound foolish. That's what we're talking about here. <laughs> so, so like I can still be a little penny wise, pound foolish when it comes to stupid things like, 
like airfares and hotels. I'm just like, oh, I can't, yeah. I can't. Oh, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to fly these two different airlines because that's a better price. Like, you know, so, you know, it's just small business owner stuff. Founder, founder led businesses. We are a beast, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I, I will say that the, the residential gallery concept though worked so well in LA that very quickly I began searching for locations in New York to replicate this idea. And we ultimately did land on a location um, sited in the West Village and that has become our location in New York. So we took this this residential gallery concept and we've applied it to Los Angeles and as well to New York. And that is also my house in New York. And we should explain for listeners that you're that you're constantly turning over displays and and do, putting on new shows and installations. Oh and- my god. The calendar. <laughs> oh my god. Like, you know, it, it's my passion and it's my curse. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's a it's a r- rapid pace with which we 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 do shows and we and we flip things you know i think we have a like we have a commitment to our clients to make sure that every time they visit us whether that's in san francisco which is a more traditional um ground floor retail environment or in one of our homes in new york or los angeles we need to make sure that there is newness going on on the floor every time they come so we make an effort to we're really running like our pace is, 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 is a real sprint. Um, we switch over exhibitions probably every six to eight weeks. Um, some larger exhibitions will stay in place, but we're always, then we would always do an exhibition in a different space, you know? So we have so many different spaces within the space, which is with which to exhibit that we can constantly re-energize our space and our community on, um, on a calendar of like six to eight weeks. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Minted, the design marketplace of independent artists, a premier resource for discovering, planning, and purchasing art. Sign up for Minted's trade program and their dedicated team of experts will create curated art proposals tailored to your clients' needs. They'll package art recommendations, sizing suggestions, frame and formatting guidance at no cost to members. Request yours today at minted.com slash trade. And now, back to the show. So often I'm, I'm curious about name recognition. And I feel like you've done so much to support uh, all, all of these designers and, and, and grow their their recognition over the, over the years. But it seems like it's still a relatively small segment of, let's say, the overall design world. And and often we look at this gallery world relative to the designers who might go to High Point or who might go to what we think of as more traditional furniture type markets. And and I wonder if you're seeing more more crossover, more awareness of these of these artists, or do you think that having them be more limited or perhaps exclusive is is more desirable. In fashion, someone that designs for fashion can kind of design both for the exclusive and the mass and do so in a way that can be appreciated like equally. So like collections for Zara or something or for H&M, you know, designer collections for these types of brands, right? Can utilize the name recognition. And yeah, people know they're not getting necessarily like the quality of craftsmanship that they might get by shopping at the designer's named boutique, you know, but, um, but they're getting a taste. It doesn't work like that in the home furnishing sector. The, the work that we create is very artisanally crafted and you can't do it at mass and meet sort of a, a price point to democratically release this work. Like you can't, we can't do a the future perfect collection for Zara. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, you can, you can capture some of the aesthetic, but you lose the quality of the craftsmanship and you lose the quality of like the specialness of the pieces, you know, when work is produced on mass. So, and I mean, even though some of our work, as I mentioned, is produced in an unlimited way, doesn't mean it's not still handmade and handcrafted, you know, it also doesn't mean that our, that our makers aren't using machines to craft their work because that technology, it would be silly not to, but it also doesn't mean that it's not hand finished and 
hand put together. You know, the hand of the artist is still a huge part of the work that we we represent. Part of what I'm trying to to figure out, and I wonder even where the business ultimately ends up happening. So you have homes and and you have galleries that people walk through and experience, and yet you've got this active website and this huge social media following, and all of this comes together. Where is the transaction do you find really, really happening in the end? Are, are, are people seeing it online? Or are people seeing it on person? And then they're calling your team and the, and the deal starts happening? Where we transact functionally is individual to individual. Yes, we have an online business and we do produce e-commerce from that business, but the crux of our business is still our sales team working with um, with their clients. But that doesn't mean that the social media, like without the social media and the website, I would say there probably are not, there are no clients, you know, <laughs> they're not going to, it's going to be, it's going to limit the numbers of who's calling. And And give me a sense, give me a sense of how big, staff wise how i mean how many people do you do you have in all these different locations we have about 40 people and uh and we have a a, a pretty nicely sized sales team um mm. about 12 to 15 people are in the sales team that's spread across three cities and then in addition we have a purchasing team logistics team dispatch customer service warehouse you know so we have all of that back office and facility support to help to facilitate success for the sales team I mean, I do operate the business with the thought that our sales team is the top of the pyramid, even if they're hierarchically on the org chart may not be on the top of the pyramid in every iteration. But at the end of the day, our entire ecosystem is set up to support the endeavor of that team. So that's what we're attempting to do. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm curious, uh, recently I, I was speaking with one of the founders of the Invisible Collection, and and she talked about early on, they didn't know any better. They put pricing up for everything. And in the beginning, designers were like, whoa, you can't, we're, you can't put the pricing out there. My clients see that and all of that. You have pricing up there, and I'm assuming you've figured all that out. How do you How do you manage that process? We have some pricing up there and some pricing remains um, inquire only, just depends. Um, but we're, we're trying to make the job of the clients that are coming to us easier when they come to us. So we want to give them as much critical information about the work that they're looking at that we can. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, I mean, what do designers tell you they want as far as all of that? What does make it more simple for them? Technical specifications, details about the products, materials, material variables. Um, if those material variables have an impact on price, hopefully we can share that with the client, you know, through drop down menus. I mean, simple stuff, you know, but like complicated to set up. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The, the back of, of house and doing all of that is very complicated. I was curious about, I mean, because some some designers want the price to be out there and they're like, no, great, because I'm just going to tell my client what it is anyway. If the, if the dining table is $90,000, whatever it is, I'm gonna. That's the price I'm gonna give them. But others, oh, please don't show price because I have this markup or I do this with my client. So I'm always just curious what feedback you get. I mean, that's not my business, <laughs> you know. Because because if a private client were ever to call me and to ask for a quote for something, you know, we're not exclusively to the trade, so hmm. we would provide a quote, you know. And we may not know the end client's name from one of these clients where they're trying to secure pricing. So so. That's not a facet of the business that I can um, that I can uh, protect or manage. You know, I just think it's our job to be honest with our clients, and our our job in being honest with our clients is to is to reflect the price for the piece is the price for the piece. Makes makes total sense. So I want to hear about your grand plans and 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 what you're imagining for the future. You and I had an interesting conversation recently about scale and how big some of these things can get or 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 perhaps shouldn't get. And I'm I'm curious to hear your your thoughts about that and and some platforms are all about scale and and showing more and and I wonder how you think about it. I think our our industry is one that's very difficult to put um, traditional business ideas and impose them on our industry. I think a lot of like VCs and 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 MBAs come into our 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 field, and they sort of just want to like apply 
what would make sense for any other business besides this category. And it just, it can backfire a bit. And I'm not saying that there's not like a longer term approach that can work, you know, because I think it can, but you might end up diluting the, the thing that made you really special to start by, you know, scaling without using like names. Right. But like, right. But this is, this is true. Like acquisitions are constantly occurring within our, within our community. And a lot of acquisitions have taken place and, and these things just seem to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when you're talking to me, you're you're not talking to the head of Herman Miller, you know? So, so there is a, there is a very mass aspect to furniture. You know I mean? If if you want to scale something, go, go, go scale like the, the mass market, you can do that. You know, that's no problem. You can apply these, these ideas to companies look at cb2 look at west west elm look at restoration hardware you know billion dollar companies you know but you start looking at these sort of like boutique sort of exclusive galleries it's it's a struggle you know i mean i've been watching kind of even restoration hardware try and try and develop a gallery program they haven't quite found the potion um but i know that they've been attempting to kind of create a more like sort of one of a kind or limited edition and program within their their thing and it hasn't totally taken off in the same way that like the restoration hardware thing has taken off you know which includes hotels restaurants like hospitality i mean it's crazy so you know much (laughs) success like you know please all due respect but that is a facet of the business that's not easy to bring into something that's developed for scale well and so i guess my my question to that is are those two things mutually exclusive in your mind so can can they not do that because of course they want to do this little bespoke and this little gallery thing and they tried to bring some of the designers that may have been doing things for holly hunt or other places along um but with a very different product can it can it work for a company of their scale to to do this other thing maybe but like it doesn't it doesn't strike me instinctively as being possible like at least right now with the way things are I mean, if you look at like the art market, for example, which is huge, huge business. I mean, you know, the Kagosians and the Zwerners and these massive sort of like these, these massive art entities, you know, who really only sell to, to a very, very small swath of yeah. the public, but they seem to somehow also have like sort of name recognition that goes into the public domain. I don't view Gagosian as a shop, you know? But to a certain type of person, Gagosian is a is a shop. Like there are things there for sale, and you can buy them. But uh, in, in our field, I I don't know that that has occurred yet. Like that hasn't happened yet. No one has sort of gotten that level of scale. Well, from a, from a client's perspective, like when you walk into a space and you're seeing like work that clearly is industrially manufactured and produced, and then it's presented right next to work that's sort of supposed to be handmade and handcrafted. And, you know, maybe some people can see the difference, but for people who can't, like, is it like, how does those two things end up feeling like they're, they're different in that space? Or how do they feel like they're connected? How do they feel connected? How do they feel different? Like, I don't know. And there is, there's definitely a way to do this. It just hasn't been done yet. And what what ends up reinforces people's ideas about like what's good in quotes is like what they end up seeing in magazines, you know? So like it's still, still right. What they see in social media, what they see in magazines, what's published, what ends up being out there in the world. So you start, you really do start to see a small group of material. It's interesting that you say that about magazines because so often the criticism these days is because it is so celebrity driven, are we necessarily showing the best work or are we showing the work that's going to sell best on the newsstand or, or help drive? And we all know the media industry is, is challenged in that way. Yeah. I mean, poor media industry, you know, can we give them a break? <laughs> like if they need to put some celebrities on the cover, cause they've got to sell some issues, like let's let them do that. You know, I think, I think we all can recognize like, like, you know, this very that's... purist idea. It, it is a great idea. And I think you can do like a boutique magazine at this point that maybe has a very purist ethos right. about just only focusing on like incredible architecture and incredible interiors without the celebrity. But um, at the at the mass scale, the, the sort of the bit large scale publishing houses, they, mm. they have to sell magazines like, you know, they're 
Yeah, they just, no, no, no. They've got a job I, to do. Ab- absolutely. I mean, I used to work for Gandhi Nass. I, I get it. And and putting a bow on that scale conversation. So tell me for you how you imagine growing the future perfect now. Is it is it showing up in in more places in in houses? Is it? I mean, is it a geographical expansion? I guess is my question. Or what do you, what do you imagine takes the business to the to the next level? What we're talking about internally, it definitely is is about geography. What I'll say first, and what we're working on now, is that what we've learned by having three locations, which is not that many, um, we've learned that without operational structure, we can't expand successfully. So what we've implemented over the last few years here is we've been implementing operational systems that are developed to help us to scale, you know, and to grow. And in this new world we live in, that could just include like an entire department dedicated to um, to more design and art fairs. So that's just one example of where where expand what expansion could look like that isn't necessarily opening a new a new gallery in a location. And and we have this notion that the client that is coming to you is is not as impacted by all of the economic challenges that we talk about today high mortgage rates uh, level of inflation uh, we have this notion and and please dispel this if this is not the case that that this sort of somewhat rarefied client is less impacted by by all of that uh, and, and so is is still feeling expansive and and spending and and moving forward uh, as if there aren't really any any major headwinds. But what's your sense? Well, there is a portion of our client that that's true, but we also work with working people, and they're successful within their you know fields. But but they are you know impacted by things like layoffs or company closures or things like that. So so these things can have have an impact on our business. We're not living in a bubble. We're not we're not isolated from from the impact of economic conditions. Like for example, maybe our our client isn't really impacted by high interest rates, but just painting kind of a hypothetical picture, you know what's happened as a part of like high interest rates is a lot of people have kind of decided to stay in their homes. They're not flipping their houses as quickly. So maybe for the client that doesn't care what the interest rate is, well, they still need the inventory to be available to them to purchase. So if someone's sticking, is hanging on to their home for whatever reason they're hanging on to it for, um, that that drought of of um, of new inventory impacts that client. Let's say that's just very hypothetical. And then for us, if that client isn't sort of buying the new house or isn't sort of investing in the new thing, then we don't have a place to put our stuff. You know, and I'm not. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case because we've been fortunate that that our business has been okay. But those are ways that those impacts can can show up for people where maybe the finances aren't don't make a difference. Like we we made a critical investment to purchase the Goldwyn House with the knowledge that the interest rates were going to be changing very very soon, and I was sort of had hypothetically made myself aware that like the value in this home probably won't last. Like I'm probably buying it for a number that in a year from now. I wouldn't be able to sell it for, but lo and behold, like <laughs> if, but look at you turning out to make that shrewd move. Well, who knew it was shrewd? I mean, I made it really thinking it was going to be here for a long time. It was the, I mean, yeah. there would have been, it was not viable if I did not think we were going to be here for a nice long time, you know, who knew these values would hold, <laughs> they all held. Right. So yeah, great. You know, I, w- I will say that like the future perfect you know, one of the things that I've I've recognized in 20 years of doing this is that we opened a residential gallery concept when people didn't really recognize that, you know, you could you could do that kind of thing. And now like there's tequila bands with houses and, and, and we talked about we we've talked about yeah. this. There's a, a Digornay house is opening in LA. And like, you know, it's like a lot of our competitors and a lot of other brands have opened houses, you know. I, I will go on record saying I am not the first person to put their brand in a house, you know, or to do business <laughs> from a home, you know, but there was something very specific about how we marketed that and how we took advantage of that residential gallery experience. And I I know people saw it and mimicked it. And I think it's great because to some extent it normalizes the concept. I don't have to explain to people that there's what is a residential gallery concept, you know? 
And now we don't have to have that conversation. It's well understood. I think anytime that that one is a risk taker in their business, they have to become they have to maintain a bit of a defensive posture to somehow explain why or where they are, you know? And, um, and so I would say like, when you ask about growth for the company, it's very, very hard for me to tell you what's next because what's next is going to be another risk-taking thing that I could never plan for, but I can only feel. I spoke recently at, um, design, design leadership conference and, um, Mm -hmm. And I spoke about being a disruptor and I, I didn't understand why I was being asked to speak about being a disruptor. And it was, it was funny. I mean, it, it might seem obvious and it became obvious to me when I started putting together the presentation for, um, for why we're a disruptor. Cause I was sort of like, well, I mean, yeah, we have like an emergent or like we've always had like an avant-garde group that we've worked with. It's always been sort of on the cutting edge, but like, why is that disruptive? And then I had to like really start looking like, oh my God, no, it's been disruptive the whole way through. And this thing we're doing with like real estate, I think it's going to be incredible. Like, you know, starting to do these site specific activations. And we just, we just recently have the opportunity to start doing that in San Francisco. So I'm so excited to start that project. I'm like, get in on that, you know? And so that's definitely part of our future too. Like the real estate is definitely very, very interesting to me. And this idea of integrating artist-led interventions in architecture is very cool to me. And San Francisco uh, looks looks ready for a comeback, right? I mean, I, people always say, oh, don't write off New York. I feel like, right? Don't write off San Francisco. I, one of the most amazing cities in the world. Don't write off San Francisco. Right? Our experience in San Francisco has been a little difficult over the last, um, I'd say like year, year and a half post-COVID, you know, mm. as things have kind of like, woken up in LA and New York. They've not woken up in the same way in San Francisco for us, for our business, but we are starting to see that change. Well, it sounds like I've really got to come and and do the tour uh, of of all these places and and take it all in. So, I mean, I would love that. I would love to host you in any of our locations. It'd be amazing. (laughs) Well, I'm going to take you up on that. Um, But in in the meantime, I I thank you so much for for making the time. I've taken a great deal of your time and you're you're so kind to to spend it with me. And I'm I'm so thrilled to get to talk to you. It is a, a luxury and an honor to be able to spend this time with you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.